In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. Man, thank you, Kenny. Morning, everybody. Welcome to New City, our first gathering in 2017. How you guys feeling? Great. Now, let's give the worship team one more hand clap. That was... That was what my soul needed as we start this year out. Um, We were supposed to be doing a Vision Sunday this week, you know, where you get together and you talk about what the new year is going to be and how we're going to do it and what things we're going to do. And I was so excited for it. Um, And then I felt incredibly convicted that before we start talking about the what and the how, we needed to just step back and talk about why we're even doing what we're doing and what God what God is, is, is doing in our hearts so that we can move out and do what he's called us to do as a church. So next week is our Vision Sunday. I hope you'll be here. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that one. But this, this week, we're going to do some foundational work, some groundwork from this passage. And as we enter 2017, we look around us, it's, it's been quite a year already. The cultural landscape, the political landscape, it seems crazy out there. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, even in here, it seems crazy. You guys set goals for the new year, maybe, some of you? Or maybe some of you are so cynical, you just stopped? You said, know, I don't do those anymore. <laughs> I've lived this long, I'm done, you know? Um, I did set some goals for this year, and eight days into the year, this has been the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> We should just leave that up. That's a sermon in itself right there. That's, <laughs> it's like, 
man, as I'm looking at my life, right, and how life is just hitting me in the face and, uh, you know, that's pretty much how I've responded to life so far this year. I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to do about all this? All the brokenness out there, all the brokenness in here, and I found myself already this year frustrated, frustrated at myself, frustrated even at God. Like, God, why aren't you doing the things I need you to do so I can get where I need to go? And into that foray of emotion and frustration, this, this chapter hit me like a ton of bricks and woke me up to reality. And I hope that it will speak to you like it did to me. Because this chapter tells us the truth. It tells us that God wants to free your life and heal your heart and set you out on a mission for his purpose that's greater than what you can imagine. But in order to do that, he has to challenge some of the things that have a hold on your life right now. Does that sound, sound about right? That's what we see Isaiah walk through. Isaiah, Isaiah sees the glory of God and his heart's transformed and he moves out to start displaying God on mission in the world. And until we have an encounter with God's glory, we won't be ready for what 2017 has for us. So I'm excited to dive into this passage. There's uh, three stages of transformation that we see, and I, I pulled them out with three different words we see in the passage. Whoa, low, and go. Those are the three points. I hope you're ready. Bring it. Yeah? All right. Let's do it. Have you ever experienced one of those moments where you're going about your business, you've got your head down, you're just going through life, and something stops you in your tracks? We're in New York, Christmas, Macy's, walking around, you can imagine how crowded, how busy, and all of a sudden, you know, I've got my arms full of clothes, I'm going around doing my business, and I turn around and say, hey boys, let's go to the next apartment, and where's Gavin? All of a sudden, the clothes in my arms don't seem that important anymore. I don't care what anybody around me thinks about me. In this moment, my world has stopped. Where is Gavin? That's the only thing that matters. Now, the good news is, I'll save you the suspense, he was hiding in a rack, <laughs> like they do at that age, you know? But for that split second, that moment, nothing else mattered. Have you had moments like that? You know, you get that call, that text message, emergency, hit me up right away. And the world stops. You, you almost forget where you were. And um, that's exactly what happens to Isaiah. He's the prophet of God. He's been prophesying for five chapters about the impending doom of Judea. And, and he, he, the text tells us, it says, in the year King Uzziah died. So there's all kinds of political unrest. King Uzziah had ushered in this reign of prosperity into Israel like they'd never seen. And all of a sudden, he's dead and everything's up in the air. What's gonna happen? There's a transition of power. Will the enemy sweep in and, and take us over? What's next? And he's got all those problems out there, but he's dealing with stuff in here, as we'll see in a moment in the text. His addictions, his struggles, his things that he's walking with. And he's got his head down, kind of like those horses at Central Park with the blinders, just kind of moving forward. And all of a sudden, he comes into the presence of God. And he sees God on a throne, high and lifted up. And the holy prophet of God falls on his face, his circuits are fried. He can't handle what he sees. 
all of a sudden, everything else that was so important just stops, and nothing else matters in this moment. And he sees the angels flying. You know, we just went through Christmas. We saw Mary come into contact with an angel. We've seen that. Like in the word of God, when people see an angel, what do they do? They freak, right? They freeze. They, they, the glory of an angel is too much to handle, but, but the angels are even covering their face from the glory of God and the presence of God. And the holy prophet of God freaks out and falls down. And here's the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And to start this sermon out right, we have to talk about glory for a second. What, what is glory? Is it just a phrase that Pentecostal preachers yell out in the middle of their sermon? <laughs> glory! What does it mean? What is the glory of God? Well, glory comes from that Hebrew word kabod, which means weightiness, heaviness. Like you can stare at your screensaver of Mount Everest, but it's a little different to stand at the base of it and see the heaviness and the raw reality or to stand on top of it and to feel the gush of wind and the cold and the snow and imagine the mass and weightiness of reality beneath your feet, right? And the glory of God is like that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, says it this way. He says, the glory of God refers to the manifest excellence of God. What is God's glory? It's the raw essence of his character revealed. His godness. An infinite God that our finite minds can't quite comprehend. Like an, like an ant trying to understand the inner workings of the galaxies and the universe. We can't grasp it. And all, the, all of that is hidden from us unless God reveals it. All he, all he is, all he does is hidden from us unless he reveals it. And he does. The Bible says he does in bite-sized pieces all throughout creation. Paul says in Romans for his invisible attributes, we can't see them, right? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. Or Isaiah says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Creation is full of the reflections of God's glory in which he's chosen to reveal himself. And we catch glimpses of them all the time around us. Like, have you stood at Sunset Cliffs at sunset and seen the colors and the splendor of the sky as that ocean wave crashes beneath you and the sea mist hits you in the face? Have you beheld God's glory in nature? Or maybe, maybe you've sat in a symphony or a concert and felt the music just pulsing through you or stood before a beautiful work of art and just been overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Or maybe you've stared through a telescope at the night sky on a clear night and you've seen the galaxies and the vastness of the universe and understood, even for a moment, your own smallness in all of this. And all those, those little evidences of glory, those little reflections, they're so dim compared to the actual glory of God. We couldn't handle it. It's kind of the difference of the sunlight shining on the earth, giving it warmth and beauty. And we love the sunlight, but try flying directly into the sun. Wouldn't work out too well, right? That's the difference of beholding pieces of God's glory versus actually coming into contact with God's glory. And the truth is, if we saw God's glory head on, it would destroy us. We'd melt away. Like those guys in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You guys, you remember that? 
the Ark of the Covenant, you know. (laughs) It's like the light of his glory would cause all of the imperfections in us to just be swept away. But the problem is, apart from Christ, apart from Christ's work on my behalf, I'm mostly just those imperfections. The sin and the brokenness and the dirt, and I'd just be swept away. In fact, God tells Moses, he said, when Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, no man can see me and live. In the Old Testament, you couldn't even walk into the Holy of Holies without going through all this ritual cleansing first because you would die in the presence of God. He's so holy, he's so glorious. And on this particular day, Isaiah catches a glimpse of God's glory. And what happens? His response, he says, whoa, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, my circuits are fried. Why, because he sees God's glory and because he sees everything else in his life in light of the glory of God. All the things he's been living for, the glory he's been seeking for himself, all the the lesser motivations that have been driving his life, the people he's been pleasing, the, the goals he's been chasing, the idols he's been serving. He sees all of that in light of a holy, glorious God, and it brings everything into perspective for a moment. In Isaiah, this this holy prophet of God falls down on his face, afraid, terrified. Woe is me, I'm unclean, I'm not worthy. Because as fallen, frail, flawed humans, when we come face to face with a glorious God, we realize just how far we fall short of his glory and his purpose in us. What is that purpose? When we think about our purpose in life, when we think about God's purpose for us, and the answer is this. We were created to live for God's glory. I'm gonna get a little Pentecostal. You re- say it with me. We were created to live for God's glory. That's what Isaiah says. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 43, he says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory whom I formed and made. We were made for God's glory, but we so often find ourselves living for something far less. What does Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. I love this quote from John Piper on Romans 3.23. I'm gonna read it. I have it up here if you wanna read along. He says, now what would fall short of glory mean? And why would it be a problem unless he had shown that God made us to glorify him and that we have failed in the very destiny for which we were made. In other words, the essence of sin cannot be understood unless you begin with God and his glory. And what Piper is saying is that at the root of our sins and addictions and negative emotions and all the things that mess up our life, they go so much deeper than just a list of do's and don'ts. At the end of the day, it's a glory issue. We're dysfunctional, worshiping ourselves instead of glorifying living for our own desires. Our hearts seek our own glory instead of his. We want to be our own boss, don't we? We want to do things our way. We want to find our own happiness. We want to be in control of our lives. I mean, think about the story of God. How did Lucifer fall from heaven? Do you remember what he said right before? He said, I will lift my throne above the stars of God. Or Adam and Eve, when they were tempted and they ate the fruit, do you remember how the serpent tempted them? He said, when you eat of it, you will be as gods, knowing both good and evil. You'll be in control of your life. You'll be in charge of your own happiness. So there's this black and white truth 
that everything I do is ultimately either for my glory or for God's. If you track backward into everything you say and everything you do, there's a ton of different motivations that drive our life, but the ultimate motivation at the end of the day is either to live for God's glory or to live for our own. So let me ask you, let's discuss this for a second. What are some ways that we find ourselves living for our own glory instead of God's? And feel free to answer, first of all. Secondly, you know, it doesn't have to be you. It could be your friend that maybe lives this way. <laughs> yeah, so just jump in. Yeah, you gotta be right. So you argue till you're blue in the face. You gotta prove yourself. Yeah, good. What else? What are some other ways we live for our own glory? It's pretty much the main one, right? People pleasing. Yeah, and why do we do it? Why do we wanna please people? We want, what do we want from them? Approval, love, acceptance. Yeah, we live for that, man. We love it. That's why most of our Facebook feeds and Facebook walls do not quite mirror exactly what's really going on in our life, right? Good. What else? What else? Marco. I have a friend who likes to amplify himself in the the opinions of other people. Yeah. So Marco has this friend. (laughs) We like to amplify ourselves in the opinions of other people. Make our name great. Right? Get that little, those little bite-sized pieces of worship. And I, I, man, I'm not immune to this. I think we all do this. If you, if you just ask yourself a question, why am I doing this? And you just ask yourself why and track back far enough, keep asking why, ultimately you'll end up at something. And either it's for me or it's for God. And if I'm honest, I do most things on regular days for myself. Is that, am I not supposed to say that as a preacher? <laughs> pride. I think highly of myself, right? My glory. I've preached sermons to get applause and pats on the back. I've parented my kids in such a way to make my kids super cool so that people will come tell me what cool kids I have. (laughs) Keep the glory coming. I've kissed my wife to get love. We all fall victim to it, don't we? We get tunnel vision in our life. We, we get like hemmed in with our lives and our plans and our schemes to live our way for ourselves so we can ultimately be satisfied and glorified in our lives. If we aren't careful, we will run headlong into 2017, into this new year, trying to do new things in new ways, but, but, but guided by the same old motivations that used to steer our lives. And what we need more than anything is what happens to Isaiah in this text. I need to be interrupted by God's glory. I need to be reminded who is God and who isn't. I need to see him high and lifted up and see everything else in light of his glory, the stuff in here and the stuff out there. Because it all becomes so small when I see him so great. There's nothing we need more at the beginning of this year. We need a blazing glory of God to cut through the fog of the lies that we've believed in the lesser glories that we've been living for. Our biggest struggles in life come not from our problems being too big, but from our view of God being too small. And like Isaiah, we need to see him high and lifted up. And what happens? 
What happens after Isaiah sees him and comes and confesses his sin? Look at verse six and seven. This is point number two. And when one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, behold, that's the old English word, lo, in the King James. Lo, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So God mercifully sends one of his angels to cleanse him so that he can supernaturally stand in the presence of a holy God without being whisked away. That's amazing. How would you like to be able to stand in the presence of a glorious, holy God without fear? Good news. I'm going to give you a little piece of the gospel here. If you're in Christ today, you can. Because you're clothed in his righteousness, not your own. Your sin has been taken away, just like that angel brings the tongue from the altar, or the, in the tongs, brings the coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, your sin is removed from you. You can stand now in the presence of God. That's exactly what we get in Christ on the cross. We're forgiven, we're pardoned, we're washed, and we get to stand in the holy presence of God. And I think if we're honest, just being able to stand in God's presence and living for his glory isn't necessarily the greatest motivation for us here today, though. At first, not at first, because it's kind of abstract, it's like, what does living for God's glory mean? I still have needs. I still want to be happy, right? So let's dig just a little deeper into this in point number two with two examples, happiness and healing, and talk about how this can change our life. First of all, happiness. God's glory is not opposed to our good. Would you agree that one of the main reasons that we say and do the things we do is because we want to be happy? Right? Just like Adam and Eve, we want to take control of our life. We want to be as gods and control our outcome. Get all the good, avoid all the bad things, and be happy. I mean, we're American. It's part of our God-given right. <laughs> life, liberty, and the pursuit of... That's right. Yeah, how's that going, by the way? <laughs> the truth is, a lot of us have chased happiness. Not very many of us have found it. Not in a lasting sense. You hear this before? Man, if I just had a steady job, I'd be happy. One year later, I can't wait till the weekend. I hate my job. <laughs> Man, if I could just grab a drink right now, I'd be happy. If I could just stop drinking. <laughs> if I could just get married, then I'd be happy. If I could just get some space from that person, right? If I had a house, if I traveled more, if I had a social life, yada, 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 endlessly it goes on. The problem is our pursuit of happiness will uh, never actually result in happiness because happiness isn't a destination. Happiness is a byproduct of something else. And Jonathan Edwards talks about this in his famous book, The End for Which God Created the World. And he reasons that this universe, which exists for God's glory, does not try to squash our happiness it actually provides for our happiness in fact it was created for us so god's happiness and man's happiness are not at odds i think a lot of us fall into this trap of thinking that god's happiness is somehow opposed to mine like if i really did what i wanted to do to be happy i would really take god off and if i really did all the stuff god wanted me to do to make him happy i would be miserable life would suck 
I would just live in a dark cave somewhere and never have any thoughts or never do anything because it's all sinful, right? Have anybody, like, I'm making a joke somewhat, but have you ever felt somewhat that way? Listen to what Edward says. Here's a long quote. It's lengthy, but hang with it here. God, in seeking his glory, therein seeks the good of his creatures. Because the emanation of his glory implies the communicated excellency and happiness of his creature. And that in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and communion with himself. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God seeking their glory and happiness seeks himself. And in seeking himself seeks their glory and happiness. See what Edwards is saying there? I know, I know it's pretty thick, but do you see what Edwards is saying there? He's saying that God's happiness and man's happiness are not opposed to each other. That God loves you. God wants you to be happy. God just actually knows what will truly make you happy. And we get caught up chasing happiness in all the wrong directions. Wookin Penub. In all the wrong places. <laughs> You heard me preach too much. (laughs) And there's good news today. The good news is you don't have to chase after things that you think will make you happy because God is chasing after you with that which will truly make you happy. All you need to do is stop running, turn around, and embrace him. The pursuit of happiness will never actually result in true happiness because happiness is the byproduct of living for God's glory and getting the life he gives us in return. It's like marriage. If you have two people that love one another and are living for one another and giving everything of themselves for one another, sacrificing, pleasing one another, that's heaven. Now take one person out of the equation that stops that. One person giving, loving, pouring in, the other person just taking. That's not heaven. That's that's hell, actually, for both of them. Let me ask you something. When you give God your all, do you think he's going to give you enough in return? Do you think he's going to withhold from you? See, often it's the opposite, isn't it? He gives us his all, and we withhold. But what would life look like if we really kept loving and giving and serving God and living for his glory? See, we either try to get God to give us what we want, how we want, when we want. Like, if God is good, he'll do this. If God is good, he'll bless me with this. He'll give me this. He'll heal this person. He'll fix this situation. We're like the four-year-old that prayed for a pink elephant. And then, boom, God blessed him with a pink elephant in the middle of his bedroom. Right? That never happened. Why? Because God cares more about that kid than the kid cares for himself. And God cares. I know that's random. God cares about us. God knows what we need more than we realize. We want to be gods of our own destiny. We, we want to get what we want, but could it be that God actually knows what's best for you? That God will always give you exactly what you would ask for if you knew everything he knows. So we either try to get God to give us what we want or we take what we want in spite of it, right? Like the comedian said, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and I asked for forgiveness. 
And isn't that how we live much of our lives? Like, I know what ha- makes me happy more than anyone else. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to get what I want. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. We think like this, don't we? What I want just doesn't seem to fit into God's plan, so I'll go outside of God's plan. I'll provide for my own happiness. I'll take control of my life. And God is love. He's merciful to everyone, so he has to forgive me. He's got to. And the problem is this, that in pursuing our own happiness, we are often undermining the very happiness we're chasing. We destroy the thing we're wanting. Most of us know God wants us to be happy, but we don't realize that joy comes not from all our desires being met all the time, but from loving God and living for his desires. Because his desires are what lead to our deepest joy. When we get caught up living for our pleasure apart from him, when all along his pleasure is what gives us any pleasure. We get caught up living for our glory instead of his when all along living for his glory glorifies us. Piper says it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Let me ask another discussion question real quick. What does it look like for you to live for God's glory in really practical everyday ways? Let's flesh that out instead of me just giving a list of stuff here. What does it look like for you to live for God's glory in everyday ways, with everyday things? Think about stuff you do every day. Eat, drink, wake up, like exercise, go to work. What does it look like to do that for God's glory? Being excited about going to work on Monday. Don't convict him, Tyson. <laughs> because you get to serve God. You're working as unto the Lord, not for yourself, not for a paycheck. Those things come. Those are great fruit from your work, but your work is, is worship as unto the Lord. What would it look like if you went to your job on purpose beyond just your own glory and your own needs? What else? There's some other things. Mm-hmm. So our relationships, our relationships, I'm not just in a relationship to get what I need. I'm not weighing you down under my expectations and crushing you. I'm loving you for who you are and I'm giving. Yeah, wow. Why? For the glory of God. Not to get more, right? If I serve them, maybe they'll finally wake up and start serving. No, just for God's glory. What else? Babies. What a beautiful thing that as you glorify him, he's strengthening you to be able to. You're not being crushed under all this stuff you have to do. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is all the stuff that becomes addictions for us is just misplaced glory. You know, whether it's bacon or beer or whatever you want to talk about. Do you know you can eat bacon to the glory of God? Just saying. (laughs) 
In fact, everything that you do is to be unto the glory of God. Yeah. Husbands, wives. That's why sexuality is a beautiful thing, right? Let's be really real here for a second. Sexuality is a beautiful thing, but it's, God gave it to us in a certain context, in a certain way of doing it. One man, one wife, committed relationship for life because you're able to freely give up yourself. It doesn't become an addiction when you're worshiping God through it and you're doing it his way. Alcohol doesn't become an addiction when you're... You see, see what I'm saying? Okay. Just making sure. The second thing is healing. I'll go through this very quickly, but God's glory is the most healing thing in our life. It's crazy to me. What stands out to me is that the thing that would crush us and destroy us, standing in the presence of a holy God who's glorious, that would whisk us away, because we're in Christ, we get to stand there, and that is actually the most healing thing in our life. The greatest thing you can come in contact with in your life is the glory of God if you're in Christ. Look at this uh, verse in Second Corinthians, this is Paul talking. And he's referring to Moses coming down from the mountain after having that experience with God's glory where he just, God covered his face and passed by and Moses saw the, the remnant of the glory of God and he came down from the mountain and his face was shining so bright, people were going blind, they had to cover his face. Right? It's a crazy story, we're not, we don't have time to go into it, but Paul's referring to that and here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who's a spirit. See, this is one of the best pictures of Christian maturity you can paint. That if you wanna change, if you wanna experience transformation in your life, behold the glory of God and let it transform you from the inside out and change you, and the more you behold his glory, the more it transforms you. What are some places that we can behold God's glory? How about the word of God? We come into contact with Jesus there. Those CBR journals are such an invitation to life. We wanna give them away. We're trying to cover costs, but like honestly, if you don't have the 10 bucks, just take one. Start reading the word of God and meet Jesus there. Behold his glory in the text and watch how it transforms your life. Community, one of the reasons why we push gospel communities on mission so much at this church isn't just because we think it's a cool structure. When you get around other believers and you're sharing the stories of God's grace at work in your life and you're out on mission together and you see God transform that life, bring somebody from death to life, bring a marriage back from the dead. There's nothing more glorious, is there? We give God glory and our hearts are changed and transformed. Take a Sabbath this year. And get out into nature and go stand on a mountaintop somewhere and behold the splendor and beauty and glory of God. Find ways in your life to experience God's glory and let it transform you. Amen? All right. And the more you see him, the more you'll be freed from the tyranny of that little wannabe demigod in your life that's behind the steering wheel from one anxiety and one situation to the other. The greatest thing that can happen for you in 2017 is that you can catch a glimpse of God's glory and reorder your life with him at the center. I love that song we sing around here. Evermore, my heart, my heart will say, above all, I live for your glory. Even if my world falls, I will say, above all, I live for your glory. How can you say that? Even if my world falls? 
I don't want my world to fall. But when you see God high and lifted up in his glory and grace, and you see how he alone meets the deepest longings of your heart, how he wants your ultimate happiness more than you even want it, and how he's given you these gifts to worship him, then you'll be renewed. You'll be freed from trying to be God. Be freed from living for your glory. So woe, low. Lastly, go. Tackle this point briefly. Isaiah's world has been turned upside down. A few minutes ago, he was just going about his daily business. He saw God high and lifted up. He fell to the ground. Woe is me. God said, you're clean. I've healed you. And now this verse, verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go. Guys, we can't go if we haven't been captivated by God's glory. We won't have anything to offer. We, we won't have a changed life, right? I've just, I'm gonna confess, this last year, the last part of the year, I'm looking back and I felt so dry. And I wondered what was wrong and why my heart was so like cold and felt distant. And I was actually with some pastors and one of them came up and said to me, he said, hey man, after you confessed that, I got this image in my mind of a tree that was like dried up from the roots and all the fruit on the tree it was just kind of tied on with fishing string. I was like, that's me right now. I'm living for my glory. I was so frustrated. I was so fed up. And what I needed more than anything was an encounter with God. I don't know about you, but I'm fed up. I'm fed up with living for my glory. I'm tired of trying to be in control of my life. I'm sick of striving for my own happiness. I want to live for God's glory this year. I want to rest in God's control. I want to trust him and please him because I believe that he will bring his joy into my life and I'm not going to be let down. That's my resolution this year. I'm going to live for God's glory. But as we encounter God in his glory, we're not just transformed. Not only are we engaging deeply in this most meaningful relationship in life, but we're called into mission. The more we see him, and are renewed, the more we begin to display him out in the world. And uh, I love this verse in uh, 2 Corinthians. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Here's the deal. On my own, here's what I've got. I'm a glorified mud ball. That's it. I'm a broken jar of clay. I've got nothing to offer the world in and of myself. But when I come into contact with the glory of God and he fills me with his Holy Spirit, then I have something to give, don't I? A jar is a, a carrying vessel, right? Another word that the, the scripture uses for us in, in the New Testament is we're tabernacles. It's crazy to think that the Holy of Holies, we couldn't even enter in, but now the Holy of Holies is right inside your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And that we're tabernacles moving out with God's Holy Spirit in us out into the world on mission. Think about that. What greater purpose is there in your life than to live for God's glory and to take that to other people and watch lives be healed, watch situations be transformed, not by your power, but by God's. Are you into that this year? So, so, several of you. Several of you seem, okay, slightly inclined in that direction. 
And here's, here's the thing, and here's the test, and this is what I'm kind of going to start winding things down with. Here's the test to see whether or not you're living for God's glory. God gives Isaiah a calling, but it's a loser calling by our standards. Serious. Like Matthew Henry in his commentary, this is what he says. He says, a very awful commission which Isaiah received to go as prophet in God's name by preaching to harden the impotent in sin and ripen them for ruin. That doesn't sound like a great calling. How would you like this purpose in your life? You're going to go out to your friends. You're going to live your whole life with them. You're going to pour out, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to reject you. They're going to reject your message. They're going to reject your God, and you're never going to see any fruit from it. You ready? No, that sounds horrible. If I'm living for my glory. And in some sense, that is our call. It's, our call is to share the gospel, which is good news for those who are being saved and bad news for those who are perishing. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Yeah, but that sucks. Don't forget to, to realize what happened to Isaiah before this calling. See, Isaiah walked in and he saw God in his glory and his life stopped. He wasn't living for himself anymore. He was willing to go wherever God wanted, whenever God wanted, because his life was about God's glory now, not his own. It wasn't about getting results. It was about trusting God with it. See, the thing is, if we don't catch a glimpse of God's glory, we will get burned out in the mission. We're gonna bring people into our homes and love them and pray for them and go out on mission and serve the poor and needy and try to transform the city. What if it doesn't happen? What if God sees fit to let those people who you're trying to call to repentance reject you and you feel dejected and what's the point of this anymore? Why am I doing it? If you're living for the glory of God, it's the only thing that will sustain his work in your life. Any lesser motivation will crush you. Have you been there before? Yeah, yeah. If you're living for anything less than God's glory, you will end up burnt down, broken down, and unhappy over and over. But God also gives us hope, and this is, this is the final thing. Look at this last verse of the passage, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. God is giving us a little piece of hope at the end of this chapter. God is talking about Israel coming into judgment. He says, I'm gonna chop down the tree of Israel, but he doesn't say I'm gonna uproot it. He says there's gonna be a stump left and there's gonna be an offshoot, an offspring, a holy seed left within that stump. And What's he talking about? Well, a couple chapters later, he says it this way in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who's Isaiah prophesying about when he writes these words? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the coming Messiah, the king who suffered. He will constantly refer to him throughout the book as the remnant of Jesse, the the offspring, the, the offshoot, the one who came up from the stump of Jesse. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus is this good and perfect prophet. Like Isaiah, he was rejected. 
but not just in his life and his death. Jesus came and gave his everything and people rejected him and people denied him and people betrayed him and they crucified him on a cross. Every day of his life, he he lived to put the glory of God on display and even in his death, in the cross, he put the glory of God on display. The very purpose of the cross was to put God's glory on display. In a few moments, we're gonna take communion and we're gonna remember that the bread represents Jesus' perfect life in our place. That every day of his life, he lived for God's glory. That his perfect righteousness was given for you. So when we don't live for God's glory and we chase happiness apart from God through addiction and sin, when we're subject to our negative emotions and when we're lost in the fog of lies in our life, when we give in to doubt and fear, we can stand in light of a holy glorious God, forgiven and loved and without fear because of Christ's work on our behalf, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. That bread represents his perfect life, lived in your place, so you can stand before God without fear and shame, perfect, holy, complete in him. And that wine, this juice that we drink every Sunday, it reminds us of Jesus that he perfectly glorified God on the cross as his blood spilt out. What did he say from the cross? He said, it is what? Finished. That work that he was sent to do came to a culmination as his blood spilt out for you and I to cover our sins. When we take communion, we get to remember that we've been bought back from the dead with a precious prize, the blood of Christ. We've been loved with a love that we can't even imagine. It would blow our minds and fry our circuits. And we can go in full of brokenness and sin and stand in the presence of a holy God to get the mercy that we need in our time of needs, the Bible says. Because of Jesus, we have communion with God. So over communion, we get to remember, woe are we, we are broken and frail, but lo, look at what Christ has done for us. We've been cleansed and God has filled us with his spirit to go. So we get to go forth into 2017 full of the grace of God and filled with his glory. And my prayer for us as a church and my prayer for you personally is that you'd be free from the lesser motivations that have been driving your life. And just trying to do things different this year and hope that by your own actions and your own work, you'll get different results but may you be filled with the awe and wonder of God's love for you in Christ. May you be freed to live for his glory alone. May you be free to give your all for him because he gave his all for you. And you can't out-love God and you can't out-give God, amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your power, we would not continue in our broken patterns this year living lives bound by mediocrity, fear-driven and hoping in functional saviors and afraid to change our allegiance, afraid to break free from those things we're addicted to and continuing to just seek our own glory instead of yours. But God, may we not believe the, uh, the, the, the lie that Adam and Eve believed, that, that we can somehow become as gods owning and controlling our life and getting our own happiness. 
May we not believe the lie that Adam believed and, and trade the glory of God, the creator, for dim reflections of his glory and creation around us. May we not miss our chance this, this day to lay hold of life. But by your power, Holy Spirit, I pray that scales would fall from our eyes this morning. May we see you. May we behold God's glory this very moment in the face of Christ. May we really see and feel deep down how free we are in the gospel. Free to live abundant life. Free from our pasts and idols and broken motivations and emotions. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Help us to remember we don't have to chase glory because you've chased us. We're free to live for your glory because we know you lived and died for ours. We're free to trust in your control because yours is much better than ours. Free to believe in this new identity that you've given us, God, because nobody else is more glorious and all the good things and bad things they might say about us, they, they don't touch our identity in you. What you say about us is what's true. And so I pray that this year we'd go forth and we'd behold you in creation, we'd behold you in community, and we'd behold you on mission and in your word most of all and in prayer that our lives would be rooted deeply in you and in your grace and that we would give the fruit of grace in our lives to others. That it wouldn't be just strung on with fishing wire, but that fruit would be growing out of our lives because we're rooted deeply into you. In Jesus' name.